Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson from SaveWithConrad.com. Heads up, homeowners, all of a sudden your house is worth more than ever these last few years. But what are we going to do with that newfound equity? No, I'm not suggesting you sell your house or go buy something else. But didn't we all make this decision when we bought a house where we said, hey, someday we'd like to, and one day it would be nice if, maybe it's the dream kitchen, maybe it's an in-ground pool, maybe it's a man cave. But you've got this newfound equity, and I think we should use some of that equity to turn your house into your dream home with no money out of pocket. But even better than that, we're routinely helping folks do this, and they wind up with a cheaper monthly payment. So if you got the dream house you always wanted, with no money out of pocket, and your payments went down, how easy is that? Find out how easy it is to turn your house into your dream home with no money out of pocket right now at SaveWithConrad.com. We can't wait to hear about your projects. Tell us what your dream is. We're going to help you make it happen at SaveWithConrad.com. NMLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lenders. Woo! Okay, so we're going to get everybody to um, to fire up their peacock machines. We're going to Spring Stampede Season 1, Episode 1. Uh, and as we're waiting for everyone to get set, the first match featured Johnny B. Bad against your old friend DDP. And then Steve Regal goes to a 15-minute draw with uh, Brian Pillman. And now we're going to watch an all-out brawl. So as you're watching at home with us, it's Spring Stampede Season 1, Episode 1. We're going to go to 36 minutes and 17 seconds. That's where we're going to get our time cue from. All right, so as a reminder, we're uh, on Peacock, Season 1, Episode 1 uh, of Spring Stampede here. And your time code again is 36 minutes and 17 seconds. That's 36 minutes, 17 seconds. I'm going to do a bit of a countdown. Uh, and then when uh, when I say play, you're going to press play. And, Mick, this will be the first time you've seen this match in a long time. That's right. I'm going to put the glasses on so I can better absorb it. Okay, well, here we go. Uh, three, two, one, play. Great shot there of the backdrop. Nicely done. The big curtain, and here come the nasty boys. <laughs> Sporting the tag straps. Brian Knobs has his Rambo headband on. <laughs> Jerry Sachs has a kendo stick. Oh, Brian does too. The Sandman's influence is felt even here in 94. Yeah, I think so. Was he using it in 94? I think he was. Or we'll have to look and see when the, when the kendo stick became the Singapore cane. Yes. Right after the international incident took place in Singapore. Where this, we want this to be educational too, right? Absolutely. So going back, there's a young man who stole some gum in Singapore, which is a no-no. He was supposed to take 10 lashes with a cane. Uh, Paul Heyman jumped in that immediately and turned it kendo stick into the Singapore cane. How about two signs for Cactus Jack? So it's far, nice, the Nasty right? Boys or Cactus Toys. And now, then a friend cactus. of mine came over from Japan, uh, Masa, uh, oh man, he, uh, Ma, from, from BTE, Fat Ass Masa. No, no, not B, uh, no Fat Ass uh, Masa Hori. He friend uh, uh, Jericho even said, if you've been to Japan, you haven't uh, met Masa. You you're not shit, right? Yeah. Uh, so Masa had shown up at a WCW taping with a uh, super, super dad. dad that's me. Here, pajama top. Up. That's right. And I got. I'm, I'm I'm nursing the missing ear again. This is supposed to be my last. Match before I go out to pasture to have my ear reattached to my head. 
Uh, but anyway, he. Uh, my, oh, here we go. Another look, look at all these. Here's to you, cactus. All right, there's. He's, he's going already broken a Singapore cane over you. All so right. no pool cue. Why did I think there was a pool cue? Maybe that was a pool cue. My goodness. There's a lot of tonnage hitting that ground. Max went about, he was about 6'6", 400 pounds. Great he said amateur he was an amateur wrestler. Right? Yeah, great amateur wrestler. There's yeah. a, There it is, right? That's a yeah. pool cue, right? That's a pool cue. Okay. And this is where I realize if I don't, whether or not I want to be there, if I don't start fighting for my life, these guys are going to kill me. If not kill me, then, you know, just make me look bad because uh, they thrived on the give and take. All right, that's probably the weakest offense we'll see. And he <laughs> oh, now it's your turn with the full key. Good. Got some cowboy boots on. Yeah, I don't know what. I don't even remember owning those cowboy boots. And these are the uh, the trademark Foley sweats. <laughs> Love those sweats, man. Street fight. You got to show up in Why your street not? fighting yeah. gear, right? All right, I think we have a big clothesline coming up. Oh man. Oh, it looks Bang nice, that hip or that thigh. And I sat on the apron, so I didn't make full contact with my thighs like I usually did. That is not the way you normally swing a chair, but Brian's, I mean. He got him flat. Jay Sags don't yeah. care. Those chairs could be difficult. Those are the ones you have to slide up from the back. All right, nice bump on uh, for knobs on my behalf. Oh, Appreciate taking the that. camera guy down here, too. Oh, yeah. But it's not a gimmick pool cue. Just no, it's really not a gimmick it. pool cue, and he's not pulling those shots. Uh, there'd be welts across my back after that for sure. Chair shots for everybody. And chair shots in the back, nothing special. But still. <laughs> it just clobbers <laughs> you from behind. A rare shot of the Foley torso. There, again, pushing. That'd be worth money these days. 300 pounds these, uh, at that time. Maybe even a little heavier, 310. I tell you, from the side, Max Payne looks like a heavy set canyon. <laughs> Does, right? Yeah. Max is a good dude, man. How is he as a guitar player? He was good, very good. And he had a band uh, that, you know, with Road Dog as their. Oh, there we go. He had a band with Road Dog as the lead singer, uh, Doctor Squash. Remember, I told the Steve Miller story yeah. last week. Uh, he had a band. I think that was poised to take off, and it, it never did. So, what did you think of the ramp? We just saw the interaction. I love the ramp, um, man. Yeah, a lot of guys would do some cool stuff on that ramp, and it was a good way to to take even a normal move like a backdrop, and really make it meaningful. And uh, it was cool when someone went out there to do something and immediately uh, it immediately looked special. I heard uh, managers, I think maybe Jim Cornette specifically said he hated the ramp because you couldn't work around all four sides. Uh, so not, yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess there were pluses and minuses. And if you're a manager, yeah, you can't circle the, the you can't circle the ring like uh, you might like to. You can't prowl it. This is the era where blood is a no-no, right? Bl yeah, absolutely. Because if blood wasn't a no-no, we would we have, have four guys there. bleeding right now. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. The clothesline with the pool cue, I like that. Again, all this stuff is off the cuff. Uh, now, not this, not this because spot. I this realize, yeah, yeah, we are going to have the uh, the fake concession stand brawl. Uh, but it looks like a place you could conceivably 
That's a well, merchandise problem if you hop over a guardrail. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to Memphis and Tupelo. Uh, yeah, the, the, the Tupelo concession stand brawl, kind of, it's at the bar high. So we're going with the fake concession stand brawl. But I think the stuff we're doing is good enough and believable enough where people are, okay, I'll believe for a moment that if you want a T-shirt, you could do that at this juncture. Hop over the guardrail and buy it. All right, there's a stiff one to the head. Stiff chair shot to the head. And I like the fact that they're using two different cameras. Got to pull down that shirt, no matter how much pain you're in. <laughs> the, the two camera shots, it's almost, it's got to be a little disheartening as a performer, though, because you're taking these violent bumps, yeah, and they might not be watching. Right, and so I'm glad that they're doing it. We were reprimanded afterwards uh, by Greg Gagne. For? For uh, fighting in areas where the fans couldn't see. And I said, Greg, we're on television, though. Yes. And he said, yeah, but for the fans in the arena, you know, you, you're killing the town. I was like, I don't think we're killing the town with this match. So that looks like an extra gimmick to table right Yeah, there. yeah. Well, you could argue. See the underpinning. That, uh, that any, uh, any table uh, knobs is placed on is going to give way. <laughs> oh, he's stuffing. Is that a Nasty Boy shirt? He's stuffing it. Oh, my goodness. The only way it could be worse is if it was an Al Snow shirt. <laughs> well done. Who would have thought, too, that after all this that you guys are putting yourself through, sadly, the first person that we would lose in our wrestling family here is Pee Wee the Pee-wee, referee. Yeah, Pee Wee from Cancer. Yep. You just assume, boy, these guys yeah. here. Because, man, the nasties, the, the nasties live life large. And Knobs uh, is having a tough time physically now. All right, what are, I guess I'm doing this. Oh, man. Yeah, Over the yeah. guardrail, onto the concrete. That couldn't have felt good. It's a simple call. Reverse it, you know. Again, uh, you just have to take my word for it. There's very little, if anything, set up. Uh, oh, no, I'm not saying Max set. didn't go over some things. Uh, I don't know about that. I just know from my perspective, everything is new because I wasn't part of any conversations. Oh, it just hit you with the table leg. <laughs> not just the table, but the leg. <laughs> yeah. I was doing like a seesaw thing on you. Here. Yeah. It's per- Pretty solid looking blow, sir. <laughs> yeah, the edge of the table. Yeah, that's a pretty good-looking little, little spot. Now he's going. Oh, so he's going to set this up. Is I believe the finish is going is designed to be a pile driver on top of the uh, table, and you will see an impromptu ad lib. Uh, I call an audible when uh, the table doesn't cooperate with us. And what a show this was. I mean, this is the same show we've got Ric Flair and Ricky Steamboat again. And, oh, swing and neck breaker on the ramp. At the same time, Knob goes through the other panel. Now we're setting up the table on the ramp here. Oh, we're going to suplex it. Yeah, this was a fully original. I don't think anyone ever suplexed the table before I did it. Bam! Did you come up with that just freestyled right there? Uh, I may have done it a time or two before that. I think I had because I remember doing it to Chris Candido at Peel's Palace in Erlanger, Kentucky. Uh, oh. Was that for Smoky Mountain? Yeah, but Smoky Mountain may have actually come. Ah, man. Oh, here comes the shovel. This is brutal. 
Oh, I remember this. Oh, man. So we got the big snow shovel here. Max stops Brian Knobs from using it. Now he's using it on knobs. Now watch this table start shaking. Look at the table shaking and boom! Just collapses under the weight. And so now I've got to call. Look, there's not enough room for me to take this bump of the nesty plunge properly. So I end up doing great damage to my shoulder because I've got to rotate in midair. I call the spot, just push me backwards. Boom, here we go. And oh. bam! So I landed on the right-hand side. You have to go flat. Not enough room to go all the way back, but as far as uh, Plan B's go, I think it's pretty good. I th I feel like I'm done, and now <laughs> Sags jumps on you, knobs throws a shovel, shovel, at you. and now watch me turn my face so that I don't get hit in the uh, the nose. There we go. Hit turn it, boom. God dang. Turn it so I don't get hit in the nose or the uh, teeth, and that one's over and I believe I'm going to be on an extended absence to uh, reattach my ear. My goodness. What a performance and we're not yeah. done. There's the photographer nice Linda Rufa who was a mainstay and a cool person. What are you thinking right there? Man, I'm thinking I'm glad it's over and my underwear is showing, right? Yeah, it sure yeah. is. Sure is. Should have gone with a singlet underneath. Didn't Pat used to say yellow in the front, brown in the back? Wasn't that the idea? <laughs> with those tidy whities <laughs> So uh, you're just wanting to get this over with. You're yeah. ready to scrape me off the mat and send me home. And it is over. And we realize it's been really good. You know, uh, what is it, about 12 minutes? What's what's Nick Patrick saying there in real life? He's asking if I'm okay. Yeah, and he's probably saying, "Man, that was." He's probably, I think he's saying, "Brother, I've never seen anything like that." Did you feel like you needed a stretcher, or did you feel like you could do it? No, I felt like I could get up. For the purposes of a story, would you have rather been a stretcher? Well, if uh, if the idea was I'm taking uh, three months off to get my ear reattached. Uh, maybe there should have been a stretcher. Meltzer called it one of the wildest, sickest, most brutal matches you'll ever see. Um, they traded brutal chair shots. Jack took his usual psychotic bumps in what will apparently be his last match for several months as he's expected to undergo surgery to reattach his ear. Uh, they talked about the whole uh, fake concession stand, but... <laughs> Payne went to pile drive one of the guys through a table, but with about 700 pounds of combined weight, the table broke before he, he said could set Payne up the move. It was actually Sags trying it to pile drive yeah. me, right? Yep. Jack finally took the sickest nesty plunge bump off the ramp onto the concrete, sounding like a watermelon was being splattered on the concrete. Sags then used the shovel and gave Jack what looked to be a shot to, to the head, far too brutal for words, and got the pin. After the match, the Nasties knocked out Payne by destroying the table over him. One of the most brutal matches of all time. Four and a half stars. Nice, were, right? I mean, you you haven't seen that match in a while. What did you think watching it back? I, you, I really liked it. Really enjoyed it. I think it's deserving of its uh, legendary status there. Uh, love the idea that not much was talked about. and I And I really appreciate the idea that I came in not caring and was made to care in a hurry. Seriously, those guys, you know, like uh, 
they were great. Look, when I did the thing uh, with the with the chewing tobacco, that was in Marlboro, Maryland, and I remember Harley getting on. Uh, I remember him, you know, going to curse twice in a single show. He was like, uh, somebody said, "Man, they're going to need a uh, uh, cleaning crew to, after this match." And Harley said, "They need somebody to clean up the shit in the ring." <laughs> because he thought we were doing too much Gaga. Yeah. And it was too funny. And he you know, had a little talk with me about maintaining a sense of, you know, like pride while we were out there and not just doing, doing silly stuff and throwing tobacco in a guy's eye. Uh, so they, you could have fun with those guys, but when it was time for business, they, they took it really seriously. And again, if I hadn't up my game in a hurry, I would have gotten swallowed up and uh, it would have been a really tough night for me. And it was a tough night anyway. And that injury uh, really severely bruised my shoulder. And a deep- An ST plunge? Yeah, yeah, because I didn't land flat. And there'd be one other time I didn't land flat, and that was uh, one other time prior. That was 91 for my All Japan Tour against uh, Jumbo Ceruta. And I ended up breaking three ribs and wearing a flak jacket for months. And even when I got into WCW in 91, I remember at that time, the, uh, the, the philosophy or principle of healing a rib injuries, you had to have compression to push those ribs together. And now it's recognized that what you're doing is you're opening yourself up for pneumonia because you're not allowing your lungs to expand. Yes. But I had that compression thing on my around my ribs for months at a time. I remember riding with Abdullah. I never missed a match. Uh, but there were times when I was really hurting, and there was a few months. Again, I didn't miss a match because of the broken ribs, but they didn't heal up for a long... It's hard to heal up when you're working a physical style. Yeah. You're not taking time off. Uh, so there's two injuries with the... Sand, and that's not even including the, the back of the head and the wounds and the rattling that we talked about internally and shaking up your brain. Um, so very little margin for error in a move that even if you do correctly is going to cause you a world of pain. But that was the first time I'd ever taken a pain pill was in after that a day or two punch. after that. And I immediately recognized uh, the uh, uh, euphoric property, mm -hmm. right? And that was, wow, I, I, I never felt this way before. How many hours do I have to wait before I can take another one? And I'm glad I had that experience because I was like, all right, I see why people get hooked on this. So I'm gonna take this week or whatever it is and then uh, away you go. And I don't know if I had another pain pill until, uh, uh, I believe when I hurt my back in, uh, in ECW, in August of 94, uh, yeah, some one of the boys gave me one, and uh, uh, then it was uh, maybe, maybe Hell in a Cell. So. so looking back at that, the nasty plunge is what you remember doing the most damage, but the shovel to the face, scale of yeah. 1 to 10, where are we at on that? Well, I mean, Sags always talks about the fact, and Nobbs does too, they lift that thing and I just go... You didn't see me do, well, I should have done that, right? That's a natural reaction, boom. And I know I'm with guys who aren't gonna be holding back on it, right? And so all I ask is, man, you know, you, tur you, know, you turn your head, why? Because you don't want your nose. Hit it flat. Yeah. And they hit me flat. I personally thought the Nestie plunge was enough for the fall. Yeah. Uh, Sags had other um, 
other ideas. So that wasn't worked uh, out ahead of time? No, none of that was, because uh, the only thing we knew was the finish. And again, maybe I'm looking back, you know, at this through rose-colored glasses, but it's my recollection, and I think that's uh, consistent with what I wrote in 1999, that I didn't have anything planned. Uh, maybe Max and those guys did, but I was already in my head uh, out of the company and getting uh, surgery. Meltzer, uh, or not Meltzer, you would write... Jerry Sags broke a pool cue over my head, and Brian Knobs nearly dented my skull. The nasties were sloppy as hell and, a, and more than a little dangerous, but they knew how to brawl. About a minute into this thing, I realized I better start fighting or I'm going to get killed out here. About three minutes in, I realized we were in the midst of something pretty special. Sags attempted to pile drive me on the table for the finish. The table buckled under our weight, and we crashed to the ramp. As I got up, Sags pushed me, and I fell backwards off the five-foot ramp onto the cold, hard concrete below. I didn't land flat, however, and I knew my shoulder was injured. But at least I'd earned the, uh, the right to rest, right? Not quite yet. Sags hopped down off the ramp, and I winced when I saw Knobs throw him a scoop shovel. It was plastic, but I knew this crazy bastard swinging is just going to hurt just the same. He raised the shovel high overhead, almost like an axe, and I remembered what Dominic Danucci had taught me about protecting our teeth and nose, and I turned my head to the side. Sags proceeded to hit me about as hard as another human being could, but at least I'd be out of WCW. Yeah. Big relief. Did you think that was your swan song? Yeah. I mean, I thought I might come back, but this would give me a chance to get out of what I thought. You know, it was a negative atmosphere. Um, have that ear reattached, and had it not, there were two factors led to my uh, return. So I never actually left. The two factors were uh, Dave Sullivan was injured, and mm -hmm. Kevin needed a new partner for the next month, and also the phone call from Eric Bischoff letting me know that I had uh, encouraged Missy to uh, reach into Ted's deep pockets. So I believe the Sullivan phone call came on the same afternoon and uh you wrote in your book man you think i would have learned by now right i was awakened two days later by the sound of a telephone it was kevin sullivan <laughs> two days after this two days after brother <laughs> yeah he just encouraged me to give it one more go have one more match was it where you uh why were you so agreeable why weren't you a harder sell you just had a soft spot for kevin <laughs> Or you secretly just really wanted it? I didn't really want it, but I was also I was also on a post-match high, you know, remembering how good this stuff could feel afterwards. That's that's the thing I miss most about wrestling is that post-match, that time you spend together, uh, you know, and it's this crazy thing because you know the, the four was just beating the hell out of each other. Yeah, wasn't the same, you know, when uh, Nobbs was injured. Obviously, there's no post-match high when you're worried about one of the guys. Uh, but to spend that time and realize he just done something really cool in my mind too. I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I'm going to be off for a while. I'm yeah. going to be home with my kids, which is the thing I love most of all. Um, so Sullivan, it was, there was a definite yearning for me to do the right thing by Kevin because he had been so instrumental in my character in 1990. And I knew we worked together well. And uh, I did like, I did enjoy working with the Nasties. 
and there was a feeling that uh, you know we could uh, we could do something. In hindsight, um, would you have done anything differently with the match? Or are you pleased with it? I was really happy with it. In hindsight, I probably would have been uh, more present mentally beforehand. But they weren't guys who liked to go over spots anyway. Right. You know, I don't know how much we had planned the next month. You know, a lot of it's just give and take. And you're fine. You know, they're bringing something out with them. But it's not like we were going under the ring to pull out bizarre objects. Right. You know, we're kind of using what's around us. And I say that as, you know, three minutes of the match take place at a fake concession stand. So And, and there's a pull cue and a scoop shovel. Yeah, but these are things you could, con yeah. you know, whether they brought them out, they had them. But uh, I thought it was a great job of use, utilizing what you had around you. Um, I think since that time, we've seen many a brawl that's even wilder. Um, well, because that really set, you know, and, and you and I know it's a tribute really to Tupelo, but a lot of fans would see that happen in ECW, and then when anybody else on TV did it, say, oh, they're ripping off ECW. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But you guys were doing that long before Yeah, ECW. I think so, yeah. And uh, Rotten Ron Starr had taught me how to brawl around buildings and uh, – 89 so i'd say we predated uh you know my affinity for brawling around buildings predated ecw sure you know when i and uh, joel goodhart's tri-state wrestling was the yeah. precursor of ecw of course and uh the wild matches i had with eddie gilbert you know i think uh stand the test of time and eddie was such a oh, so instrumental and again along with my wife believing in me i think having that angle with eddie gilbert uh, was a real big factor in me believing that I could deliver a, at the top of the card. It's interesting to see the choices of the weapons, and you can sort of tell what the guys picked versus what the company did. That that table they had set up for Brian Knobs was <laughs> it was ready to collapse right away. The thing is, you know, here's I love Richie Posner, the Magic Man. Sure. But anytime you ask a, the gimmick guy, the chances are not anytime, but they're prone to over gimmicking. Yes. And they're so, trying to be helpful. They're trying to be helpful. Uh, like when I had the match with Triple H, uh, Hell in a Cell, and I throw the stairs, uh, it's, I'm envisioning the mesh starts to give, like a chunk, like a corner gives way, so that when I hit it with my shoulder, which is where the, the blood comes from, I really have to run through that thing. And really, I could have just stepped right through it, because that thing went through, the, the stairs went through the cell like a a knife through hot butter, ching, and there was no need for me to do it, but I'd already figured this is, you know, going to get that in. And it did add to the match, right? Sure. But I, I didn't need to dive through that cell structure like I thought I would. Uh, but whoever was in charge of gimmicking that table should have realized, look at the size of these guys. What's going right? down? I, I, we don't, we don't. Yeah, look, the table broke for me and... Uh, Sags, just and on. that was not a gimmick table. Right. I just remember, and I had the same feeling, I believe, when I pile drove Triple H in 97, 97 yep. for the MSG. debut of yeah. Cactus Jack, and we did get that, uh, we got that uh, pile driver in. Compare and contrast that to the pile driver on a not the non-gimmick WWE announced tables where that thing doesn't give at all unless somebody does something to it. Otherwise, yeah. you're, you know, you're being pile-driven on the house that the third little pig built out of brick. I just can't imagine you know, the, the disparity between 
Here's this overly gimmicked balsa wood table. <laughs> and then a freaking pull cue. Right. Like, is that the only time you've worked with a pull cue? I can't remember that being used in one of your other matches. I know I there was a know. silly barroom brawl that Brother Love was in on WWE pay-per-view in like the mid-2000s. But I can't remember another time besides maybe skits at the Friendly Tap. The Friendly Tap would have had a pool cue, but it probably would have been gimmicked, you know. Yeah. Uh, why? I, I probably just saw something that Sags or Knobs saw laying around and and took it with them. I can't recall using a pool cue as well, because there's no give to it, you know. No. There's no give it's to crazy. it. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah. And then there's the shovel. Uh, we saw the shovel, and we just recently talked about it not too long ago with Buried Alive in 1996, but th- and then here. But wasn't there one with Vader as well? It feels like yeah. He- there was, <clears throat> the story of the shovel is uh, I'm going to come out of uh, uh, the stands in yep. Montgomery, Alabama. There was a great angle that took place uh, where uh, uh, Harley Race brought uh, Paul Orndorff into the fold. So it's me, Paul, and uh, me, Paul, Harley, and Leon. Uh, but they want he, Harley wants to find out who the tough who the tougher is between me and Orndorf in order to face somebody. And then Paul and I have the you know I, I watch it and it's it's not spot after spot, right? And I'm not talking about the pay per view match we did where we had uh, we did, did have some cool stuff lined up and there were a couple bumps that have you know made the. The uh, there's a GIF or GIF, right? G- whatever, whatever it is, whatever the kids are calling it today, it's one that gets a lot of looks. There's a couple bumps in that match that get a lot of looks, but the give and take between me and Orndorff was just really good. It was a good, good basic match. Everything looked good, and that's where Paul came up to me uh, a few days later. I think we had two matches on TV, and he was offered a contract. So here's the guy who headlined WrestleMania, the original WrestleMania, one of the great heels, I'll say, not just of his era, but of all time, just a great heel. And he tells me he's been offered this contract, and he thinks that the matches that he and I had were a big reason, and he thanks me for it, which is, you know, again, goosebump stuff. Uh, I get the turn on me, Orndorff, Leon, uh, Harley, and now I'm going to get my revenge in Montgomery, and I know I have just the one chance to make that impression. Uh, I, you know, Rip Rogers, one of the wisest uh, wrestling sages there is, and he had made me believe you get one good turn every. I think he thought in your career. I think you get one turn, good turn everywhere you go. And then everything out after that is uh, case big of, show. Yeah, yeah, and you become the big show where. Chris Jericho and I can kill three hours on a plane talking about his turns, not even finish at the end of a three-hour flight, and that was 15 years ago. So yes. the man has turned a lot. But as far as that one great baby face turn, you know, you, you get one. And so I'm going to come out, and we uh, see a steel scoop shovel, whether aluminum alloy, whatever it is. We call everything steel. And I realize I've not worked with a scoop shovel. You know, there was no Danucci class in which he brought us aside. <laughs> day one was nasty plunges. <laughs> day two, plunge, right? Yeah. <laughs> they, they never mentioned the knee pads. Darn it. <laughs> I should have worn the knee pads. So I'm working with the shovel. I'm like trying to like flick my wrist. How What's can I magic? do this? Yeah. yeah, because you don't want to hit the guy with the butt of the shovel. You want it to be as flat as possible. And Harley sees what's going on, 
and whether he walks over to me or just says it to me from a seated position, it it resounds with me. He says, if you don't hit him out there when we get back here, I'm hitting you. So suffice to say, when it came time to swing that thing, I swung it with everything I had. So Leon's got his back. And it's always, you know you're going to get jumped from behind. You know you know you're going to take a, yeah. a shovel. I don't know if he knows Harley's put the fear of Harley into me and that right. I'm extra motivated. It's not just the biggest turn of my career. It's the fear of Harley race. So Leon's doing his, I fear no man. I feel no pain, but it comes out as, I fear no man. I feel no power. So I hit him as hard as I could. The steel's you know, you can hear it, right? And now Paul feeds over and Paul gets a hand up, as we all should. And here comes that tough son of a bitch, Harley Race, no hand. He feeds up, he takes that shot. Out comes Kevin Nash, who's not Kevin Nash, but working uh, Vinny Vegas or whatever he is at that time. Boom, down he goes. Out, Mark Canterbury, boom, Mark would be out with concussion after that. And now I'm waiting for that 11 to 15 guys, extras, who are supposed to come out and feed me, and they don't arrive. When I get to the back, I'm excited about what we've done, but I ask one of the agents, where were the guys? Brother, they took a look what was going on, and they took off. <laughs> it took off. So you could argue that these guys are out of the company. You know, they would just come in for a day day rate of a hundred yeah. bucks, whatever the going rate was. Not enough to be on the receiving end of those shots. So uh, between me and Harley, yeah, Harley inspiring me. I was I was swinging some steel that day. And it was a and it was a great turn. That's yeah. one of my favorite Harley stories. I'd heard it before, but I wanted to make sure we got it in on the show. So by now you know that Mick and I have spent a lot of time talking about some of these death matches and some of these bloody wars that he had. But you probably also know that that blood was intentional. You see, nobody wants to get cut accidentally, but unfortunately a lot of us do it. If you're using a cheap razor, you're getting those nicks, those cuts, that irritation. And I got to tell you, I got pretty annoyed with that whole subscription razor concept a few years ago. I found they just kept stacking up. What I enjoy most about Henson shaving is that it doesn't feel like a gimmick. It feels old school. Seriously, just the actual blade handle itself. Dude, it's metal. It's not some cheap piece of plastic that's going to break on you or frustrate you. This is like, I mean, I'm not saying it's going to last a lifetime, but it feels substantial. It feels like something our grandparents would have used. And at the same time, man, you get a whole pack of these straight razors. Dude, this is old school, but here's what's cool about it. And here's why I believe that you got to meet Henson shaving. They're a family owned aerospace parts manufacturer that's made parts for the international space station and the Mars Rover. And now they're bringing that same technology and engineering to your shaving experience. You see, I've learned that razor blades are like diving boards. The longer the board, the more the wobble, the more the wobble. Well, the more nicks, the more cuts, the more scrapes. You see, a bad shave isn't a blade problem, it's an extension problem. So by using aerospace grade CNC machines, Henson makes razors that extend just 0.0013 inches, which is less than the thickness of a human hair. That means a secure and stable blade with a vibration-free shave. It's also got a clog-free design. You see, this razor has built-in channels to evacuate the hair and cream, which makes clogging virtually impossible. 
seriously, Henson Shaving wants the best razor, not the best razor business. Let me explain. There's no plastic. There's no subscriptions. There's no proprietary blades. There's no planned obsolescence. The Henson razor works with standard old school dual age blades, but it gives you that, that new age, that new school tech. I mean, dude, these folks have made stuff for space. You darn right. They can make stuff for your face. And once you own a Henson razor, it's only like three to five bucks a year to replace the blades. I'm a big believer in this. I was overwhelmed with the value. Seriously, you're going to get more blades than you can imagine. In my first shave, I have to admit, I was a little intimidated. I haven't worked with a straight razor like this before, but dude, it was easy. And I felt like a badass when it was done. I'm going to tell you the design is incredible. The durability is awesome. It's super affordable. My buddy Cassio kid came over to watch the Royal rumble and I had told him about the razor before. And I said, Hey man, I got to show this to you. And I showed him the blade. I showed him the razor. It's, it's something you got to see. I recommend it. It's the most manly thing you can do today. It's time to say no to subscriptions and say yes to a razor that will last you a lifetime. Visit hensonshaving.com forward slash Foley to pick the razor for you and use code Foley and you'll get two years worth of blades free with your razor. Just make sure you add them to your cart. That's 100 free blades when you head to H-E-N-S-O-N-S-H-A-V-I-N-G.com slash Foley and use the promo code Foley, hensonshaving.com forward slash Foley. About all of that, including that famous Madison Square Garden match where we see Cactus Jack, but this is where it starts to get interesting because this is the same night where you're doing the six man with Undertaker and Stone Cold and you're doing it as dude love. But then later you're going to be wrestling on shotgun Saturday night against <laughs> Owen for the IC title as mankind. And I don't know. I don't think this has happened before in wrestling. <laughs> Did you find that challenging to try to go back and forth from the two characters? We see you do yeah. it at the end of every show now, no problem, but never before was, was Kevin Nash a master blaster and diesel right. and Vinny Vegas and Oz in the same night. And you're going to start doing that. Well, in the, yes, but I had honed that craft when I was in world-class championship wrestling where for budgetary reasons, when Killer Tim Brooks left, they didn't hire New Hill. They just had me working twice a night. Once as Cactus Jack and once as <laughs> not super executioner, Gorgeous Gary Young and I won the titles as, uh, well, somebody will know this off the top of their head. And we were masked, uh, mask wrestlers. But the deal was I'd broken my wrist against Eric Embry oh. in a scaffold match. So I was going out and losing as not super, it's going to kill me that I'm calling it super, whatever he was. I've got the same burgundy cast up to my wrist. So I lose the match there. And then I come out supposedly with my heat as Cactus Jack with the same distinctive walk. One night, Matt Bourne in what may have been one of the most embarrassing, and Matt liked to kid around a little bit. So. As he, I shot him off and he had the headlock on me, he kept a real firm grasp and took my mask off in the process. And I come off those ropes and I'm just like, <laughs> <laughs> crawled out of the ring and Bronco Lubitsch hands me the mask oh and I come my. back out like, yeah. So I did have a little bit of, uh, a little background in working two characters in one night, trying to make the styles different. But at that point, the, just the audience accepted yeah. that this is something that went on. I would have uh, Chad Patton read a note 
you know, saying, I have a note from Dude Love, and he would go, ow, have mercy. Let me tell you something, Daddy. The dude is, uh, you know, the, oh, the dude. And Owen would help me write these promos. But the, the, this is not exactly the dude's bag, but he knows somebody whose bag it indeed is. And then they'd introduce Mankind as the, uh, the replacement. And the place would go, to quote Pat Patterson, banana, banana singular. So uh, it, was, it was a fun time. Do you think it could work again? I ask because I heard recently Road Dog say on his great podcast, Oh, You Didn't Know, that he once pitched Sami Zayn as wrestling as Sami Zayn on Friday, but being El Generico on Monday, and Vince, back in the day, I guess, shot it down. Sammy can... I, he could have pulled that off. I I'm going to stand on my explanation that uh, everything Sammy and Kevin Owens do turns to gold. Yes. So if he was given that, uh, given that opportunity, I know he could pull it off. This is obviously a big show, SummerSlam 97. It's uh, got gimmicks all over the place. We're definitely getting more into the Vince Russo era. Uh, you and Hunter are going to open the show open, in a cage. Yeah, right. Then Goldust and Brian Pillman are going to wrestle. And the stakes are, if Pillman loses, he has to wear a dress. Which he did, right? Yes. And he wore the dress and wore it well, from what I remember. He looked phenomenal. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Davey Boy is going to have to eat dog food if he loses to Ken Shamrock. Steve Austin will have to kiss Owen Hart's ass if he loses the Intercontinental title. And Bret Hart won't wrestle in America again if he loses to The Undertaker in the world title match. I understand that Eric Bischoff is a big <laughs> proponent of stakes, but maybe maybe Vince Russo has too many here? Maybe. Well, remember, anything Vince Russo suggests has to pass by, has to be passed by. The ultimate filter, uh, as they call uh, it. Vince. Yeah. But I'm thinking... You know, there was some frustration in that we felt like we finally had the better show, and it wasn't yet yielding that that vantage point in the ratings. Right. You know, we were still getting beaten every week, and we would for the next thirty or thirty-five weeks into the uh, eighty-three week run of WCW on top of the ratings. So I think there was a little bit of frustration, and also the sense that. Uh, SummerSlam is securely in 1997 the number two show. I'll argue that I think Royal Rumble is bigger than SummerSlam now, and it's become like uh, a destination, you know, yes. for for parties and you yes. know the 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 WrestleMania. What are the, uh, it, uh, they get a little bit of gambling? What are they? What's the re, what's the word I'm looking for? Not an auction. Well, they do prop bets and yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, I, yeah. and we love doing that, and I think it's one of the most fun matches. It can be depending on the finish, you know. I remember taking my kids to see a Royal Rumble in Philadelphia because there was. Oh, you're a, thinking of squares. That's what people do. They do Royal Rumble squares. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I don't want to jump out. But just sure. just indulge me here. There was a big blizzard in Philadelphia, so I thought I'll drive. I've got more experience than my oldest son driving the blizzard. And so I was basically dropping them off at the first union center, whatever the name was at the time, in Philadelphia. And then when I came back to pick them up, I didn't have to know how it ended to know it did not end well, because I just saw people with their head down. Nobody had that vibrant feeling of joy that I talked about uh, in the post uh, Ric Flair's last match uh, backstage area. Uh, it, was, it seemed like a depressing night. Because we didn't give the people what they wanted at that time. Uh, uh, 
but the Royal Rumble, I think, usually does leave people feeling good, and it's uh, the anticipation of it is always. Uh, and isn't it crazy too? The I think the Royal Rumble you're talking about is when Roman won it, and, yeah. and Rock is Rock there to anoint yeah. him. Yeah. And now here we are saying, man, how magical will that be as a WrestleMania? Oh, yeah. It's just a handful of years later. Sure. Really. Yeah. And uh, and if that was the plan all along, kudos to Mr. McMahon. Stay in the course. Stay in the course. Yeah. Saw something in him, and now it's like, well, I was a Roman believer and uh, I you know I got a lot of flack for sticking up for Roman at a time when uh you know that's not what a lot of people want to see. Yeah. And then he was able to turn, you know, what was not a perfect baby face into just one of the great heel depictions of the last ten years at least. Thank you, yeah. Paul Heyman. Yeah, Paul Heyman. Big yeah. big big proponent of that. So let's talk about SummerSlam here and what big business it is. You've got 20,213 fans there. So probably one of the biggest crowds you've wrestled in front of at this point. Before, yeah, before things really got rolling in 98 to where we were selling out almost every night, sometimes before the card was even announced, this would have been a giant, a giant crowd. 17,361 fans paid an incredible $523,154. And over two hundred and two thousand dollars in merch. Wow! In nineteen ninety seven, that's a huge house. It's a big house now. Yeah. But back then, let's uh, let's talk about what we're doing next here. We've got we've got to keep building the Heart Foundation. You're the tag team champion. The show's in Halifax, Nova Scotia. The main event is yourself, Steve Austin, and the WWF champion Undertaker taking on Bret Hart, Owen Hart, and Davey Boy Smith now in a flag match. Now, I bring this up because you are maybe an unlikely tag team partner for Steve Austin, but given the long history you've had with The Undertaker, boy, we're really stretching now. It's more about, you know, this America-Canada circumstance more so than what you guys' personal issue was as characters, The Undertaker. What do you think of that creative? He's my he's my lifelong rival, and now we're and without really partners. a story as to why we yes, uh, mended fences. Just happily here, you know. I think um, <laughs> going back to the to the controversy that was not a controversy in my mind, which is Undertaker not mentioning me at the uh, yes Hall of Fame. And then me, you know, saying, look, if I'm not hurt by it, don't be hurt on my behalf. This right. guy did so much for my career. And I even heard a quote where he goes, look, I love Mick Foley. I've talked on Blue and the Gills about Mick Foley, which he has. And I think the only thing knock that Undertaker would have is that he was not a dude love guy. I see. Like, I think it hurt him a little bit on a professional level that the guy he'd done so much for was now, mankind was out now there shucking and doing this thing. But over time, he really came to appreciate the three different faces. But I remember when the two of us teamed up, I believe in Kuwait or maybe one of those other uh, countries in that region, Dubai or uh, Oman, one of those things, that the main event was The Undertaker and Dude Love, which didn't seem to make uh, a lot of sense. Right. But uh, yeah, they threw us together, the Americans versus the Canadians. And I'm going to take your word for it that it was a great match. It was super heated. Uh, uh, I think Brian Pillman got involved. He's going to prevent The Undertaker from getting the flag. He helps the Hart Foundation to victory. But I think up to that point, it might have been like a top five most heated match in Raw history. Because this, as crazy as it sounds now in hindsight, I mean, that was the genius of Vince McMahon at the time, I suppose. 
this America-Canada rivalry with the Hart Foundation at the centerpiece, fans were just really with oh, it. Wow. And that's why we go back to Canadian Stampede as being one of the yes. most. And it was Justin in your house. And I'm, yes. who better to talk about in your house than Mr. In Your House? Of course. The number one name in secondary pay-per-view. <laughs> this this Raw is also known, uh, well known for the scuffle that Vince McMahon and Bret Hart would get into at ringside. and. That's almost something that we never thought we would see. Right. An acknowledgement that Vince McMahon was maybe management, much less the owner. And then some physicality. You know, once upon a time, guys like Gordon Soley and, 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 and guys who were on the broadcast side, they were untouchable. Right. And now you see Vince involved a little bit. This is before he's the Mr. McMahon character, before he's wrestling Stone right. Cold yeah, on yeah, Raw. Yeah. Were you surprised to see him put himself in that spot? We were, because I think uh, the world sees the uh, Montreal Screwjob as the advent of the Mr. McMahon character. But this, like you said, this would be the first time acknowledging, I think, in the open that this guy was more than just an announcer. Yes. That, and I don't know if that was planned, but it, it, it worked, right? Brett was a spectacular heel, even though he was cutting babyface promos. He was. You know, talking about the Canadian way of life uh, where we, you know, we look up for the, uh, we look out for the poor, we take care of the ill. And I gave Shawn Michaels the line uh, where he said he remembered uh, uh, opening up his Canadian toy soldiers on Christmas morning. They all came out of the box <laughs> <laughs> like that, which is ridiculous because Canadians yes. have fought very bravely, you know, sure. and, and uh, many a conflict. But it got really personal. Remember when Sean put the Canadian flag up his nose? Oh, yeah. Like, man, they almost had to have a police escort. It's crazy. And that was a time back in the States when there were like two or three shows stopped in a row because of fear of rioting. You know, egged on by, yeah. by, by Sean, you know, doing a great job as being the heel. But uh, I think there were riots in Arkansas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. In Memphis and Little Rock, back to yes. back. Yes. Memphis, maybe we came close. Little Rock uh, was... A, was yeah, it got it got nasty. We're going to be you talking back at a match like that that wasn't televised. You know, this is just for the house, but it's with Steve Austin, Brett, and Owen Hart. Looking back, man, sometimes you don't know these are the best times of your life until you look back. But, I mean, look at who's in that ring. Like, as a fan, you would think, I can't believe that match happened, and I'm lucky enough to to watch it. But I can't imagine from your perspective, it's not going to be too much longer. and. None of that's going to be possible. Brett's going to be out of here. Mm -hmm. Owen, unfortunately, no longer with us. It was a moment in time, and there were no cameras present. That's pretty awesome. And I was still trying to get the feel for the dude love character, realizing that, well, if dude is every bit as tough as mankind or Cactus Jack, there's no need for those characters. And it seemed like we had told that story so well in the interviews with JR that looking back on it, like once I became dude, that to some people was like the end of the journey. Yes. So mankind, I remember working as mankind at some house shows and you got the sense that they wanted to see the dude. Oh, wow. Right. The dude over, you know, he outlived his, uh, his, uh, his usefulness. I, you know, I always say the summer of love was a magical time, right? July and August of 97. But by the time I was told to put 28 minutes in with Jim Lee and Anvil Neidhart in, um, um, uh, Trying to think of that in Kuwait, 
is the night before, uh, I guess, uh, the, not much of a crowd, but it was a guaranteed show. Yeah. And the night before it ended a little early. So they wanted a full show. It was like 27 minutes with Jim Nider. That's a long time, right? That's a tough match for anybody. And by the fifth time I got up on the second turnbuckle and did the dude dance, like I realized the summer of love was over and that yes. ship had sailed. And of course, dude would come back in a great incarnation as a heel. But that was like a, a beautiful three, four month run. Uh, when you're in Kuwait and you're doing that, and in your mind's eye, you think, hey, they're not with it anymore. This has gotten old in the same match. Do you wonder or worry, can I go back to Mankind? Will they buy me there? Since they did feel like, you know, that was maybe the end of the journey. Yeah. Because the way you told the story, that did feel like the if this was a movie, we're about to roll the credits, yeah, right? Yeah, right, right. Well, but now you're still wanting to make a living in the industry. You kind of want to hit rewind a little bit, right? Absolutely. So the um, the Godwins, we haven't talked yeah. about them much on the show. Uh, kind of the unsung heroes of the tag division for the middle <laughs> of the WWF in the 90s. But, I mean, they were there for a long time. And for whatever reason, Vince loves the the hillbilly <laughs> characters. He's had them forever and ever. What were those guys like in real life? Did you enjoy working with I them? Did. I did. And I liked both those guys, Mark Canterbury and uh, Dennis Knight. And really enjoyed them when they were the uh, uh, Tex Slazinger and uh, Shanghai Pierce. Yeah, Shanghai Pierce, right? Um, good guys. And there's a photo I posted a few months ago, uh, probably back in February, of my son's first Dewey's first first birthday party, and the wrestling contingent that was there was ravishing Rick Rude. Always surprised people that Rick and I were such good friends. Yeah, uh, ravishing Rick Rude, Van Hammer, which also surprised people. And uh, and Shanghai and Tex, like I really liked those guys to the point where I brought Tex over to Japan with me when they needed like another like killer uh, killer uh, American. So they brought him over as uh, Tarzan Goto's brother-in-law. And uh, I, uh, yeah, Tar I remember Phineas uh, or Dennis saying like, "Yeah, I said to the crowd, I'm his brother-in-law." One of the magazine guys goes, "I know, I gave them the idea." <laughs> so, <laughs> so trying to be kayfabe but over there you know the the the, the writers had a had a say like right. those type of things but i liked it they were both real solid guys you know phineas uh, uh henry mark uh, uh mark canterbury worked a real physical old school heel style and shanghai or dennis knight reminds me of when i was you know getting a little bit of a push in w at wcw in 1990 that he wanted he said can i take one of your bumps i said what do you have in mind and so he was a big guy six six he went around 270 and uh i gave him the slingshot and he took the bump over the top rope to the outside which was a heck of a bump for that time period if you do it right it's still a heck of a bump so uh i like those guys I, I was never a fan of the names that were puns or the names that spell that. Yeah, yeah. Hog, Henry O. Godwin, Phineas I. Godwin, you know, Hog and Pig. With that being said, I, you know, I was not a fan of Decatur, Illinois, either with the drill, Isaac Yankum, like the plays on words. Not that a few of them didn't work here and there, but uh, I loved, I, I did enjoy working with those guys. The premium live events, as they're now called, are uh, not like they were back then. But this is the first show in New Jersey in almost 10 years. So there's a lot of hype around it, a lot of media. They're even going to have the governor there. Um, and this goes back probably to when Vince did not want to pay the taxes. The taxes. 
Yes. And uh, that had a lot to do with Vince. The Athletic Commission versus this is sports entertainment. Sports entertainment. Yeah. And that was thought to be, oh, it's going to be the death knell for professional wrestling. And now you look back and see how fortunate we were to have portrayed it as sports entertainment. Otherwise, I believe we would have just been rolled by UFC. Once oh, yeah. people saw, oh, you can't do an Irish whip yes. in combat. This is what it is. But we had already, I think by Vince making that declaration, which I hated, right? Because I wanted to bring um, realism into my matches. And I wanted people to have that reaction that I love to have, which is, okay, maybe the rest of that wrestling is this, but this is different. Like you still want you, and you were still able to do that from time to time. But by declaring it sports entertainment over the next few years, what it allowed fans to do was accept it for what it was instead of knocking it for what it wasn't. So in the old days, you'd get that, hey, is that wrestling phony? You get it all the time. And that's, that stopped being the comment to the point where you, when you did get it every once in a while, it just seemed ridiculous that somebody was still coming at you with that vantage point, especially when I went to India and they all wanted to know, like, is, wrestle, is wrestling real? You're like, you guys worship the great Kali. Have you seen his body of work? Like, right. this is an expo. I hope the big guy's not listening, but it was <laughs> pretty much an expose. Uh, and this is even before he got into the snake charming contest. But uh, So the go-home Raw for SummerSlam is in Pittsburgh on July 28th. Little do we know, 11 months later to the day, you're going to set all kinds of history in oh, Pittsburgh. Yeah. Uh, it features you on the show twice. You team with Steve Austin, his dude, love to take on the Godwins. It goes to a count out because Owen interferes. And then later, you find yourself in a cameraman outfit, and you're going to attack Hunter Hurst-Helmsley before his match against Vader. China's going to make the save. You and Hunter are brawling in the stands, yeah. but you're dressed as a cameraman. I loved that. thought yeah. it was super creative. Is that a Vince Russo idea? I wish I could tell you. I don't think it was the first time that it had been done either. I think there'd been a few. Well, people I loved that, it. Yeah, thanks. I, I don't think it was the first. I'd be happy to find out that it was that other people emulated that. But I think it was a case of us copying an idea that it already worked. It is a great. It is a great idea. You yes. know, you're there and you got the camera covering up and you're sneaking out under the cover of darkness. Your heartbeat is you know quick um, because of the adrenaline, and then you you have to make that out. It's nerve wracking, but it's really rewarding. So uh, I don't know if it was Vince Russo. Vince had some great, Vince Russo had some great creative ideas. And a lot of the things that did work for my character were uh, Russo initiatives. Uh, but I can't tell you for a fact whose that was. Talk to me about brawling in the stands. You know, we see most of the action happen between the confines of the squared circle, but every now and again, the story or the match will call for you guys to brawl amongst the fans. Yeah. And that feels like that's a tough spot because you're trying to serve two masters. You're trying to make it look good, but also not hurt anyone because, I mean, families are there and you don't yeah. want to bump into someone. And I know that that's probably not the first thing you think about as a performer, but I'm sure the company's thinking yeah. about it. What's, what's the magic or what are the rules of thumb of brawling through the crowd? Well, I remember going on my first tour for All Japan in 1991, and, and I thought, based on Brody, you know, running out as Hanson, a lot of the, there were four or five of the monster heels did that. And Japan brawled among the audience and, if, and audience members knew if they got in the way, they would get hit. So that made those arrivals seem much more authentic. And I'll say that, you know, given all the pyro in the world, nothing is dramatic to me as a 
Bruiser Brody entrance in all Japan, especially when they had the Zeppelin song, Valhalla. Sure. Uh, after a while, they had to go to a generic version of Valhalla, so it wasn't quite as good. Still, the idea that if you were in the way, you were going to get hit. But I found out about two weeks into my tour, uh, uh, the, the guy who did the translations, I can't remember his name, came over and said, Cactus on, uh, maybe, maybe I don't want to power, you know, he yeah. sounds, but the, you know, I want to belittle the guy's English yeah. far better than my Japanese. Uh, but he said I was hurting fans. Wow. So I had to stop. So I was like, well, I'll take the bump that maybe uh, was best done when Steve Williams whipped me over the guardrail. And I did a ver alteration on it with Paul Orndorff that uh, gets a lot of numbers. Oh, yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, yeah, yeah it yeah, kind yeah. of goes up. Um, but those type of bumps could wipe out a couple rows of chairs and could take out <laughs> innocent bystanders. So I had to be careful not to hurt people. I was always cognizant of that to the point where I got in a you know, shouting match with Sandman after a match in Middletown because he, he, I didn't think he was showing enough concern for the welfare of the uh of the people out there so you have to look like you don't care about their right their health while uh, obviously not wanting to hurt anybody out there i liked it i liked brawling in the crowd uh when wwe had jim dotson as head of security and then everywhere after that you felt safe like you felt like you were going to be protected um so i liked it i liked the realism it brought and then you drop in any one of a stand you know standard wrestling move backdrop uh, back body drop suplex and you do it outside on the floor and it just brought a, a feeling of realism to it umaga who just beat the shit out of you earlier yeah. is going to lose to santino uh in two and a half <laughs> minutes by dq which really makes this whole thing that he ha that happened with you and raw an even bigger head scratcher right I don't, know. I don't know. Maybe I'd rubbed somebody the wrong way back then. <laughs> I do know going in, uh, let me, I, I want to give a lot of credit to Booker T. Uh, Booker at that time and throughout his career, he's experimented uh, with promo styles, accents, you know, the King Booker. And then when he went to TNA, he developed like uh, an African king. <laughs> I remember he's AJ Styles is uh, only fit to you know clean up dog uh, horse poop or so he was he would try things yeah and in this case uh, I remember him giving a promo and he goes he wasn't really doing the King Booker accent he's like how much do we actually know about this Lashley. <laughs> Yeah, great. we know he's an expert with munitions. There was some mystery. I can't remember what happened. And he's cutting a promo on Lashley. And I'm in the ring trying not to laugh because Booker is so entertaining and can be so. <laughs> it can be tough to keep a straight face around. So we're trying to make this match make sense instead of just five guys jumbled together. Uh, and, and even when it was being laid out, by that time, you know, matches were more thoroughly laid out by producers. I remember thinking, I don't think there's enough stuff in here. I don't, you know, I knew that the WWE had set the bar really high for three-way dances and four ways. And here we have this five-way and there's a meeting and they lay out some stuff, all of which sounds good. And it's like, okay, sounds good. I may have even said, like, this doesn't feel like it's long enough. And they went, oh, no, we're good. We're good. And if you go back, I believe it was only about an 11-minute five-way match. Lucky for me, you know, I didn't have to have a great endurance. Uh, 
I will go back. This is not me picking or knocking on Booker T because things happen. I do know that the next day I was, despite being angry at Vince and being sent home to compound everything I was going through, uh, with the news of the, uh, uh, the Benoit tragedy becoming apparent, I was also kind of reeling and lightheaded from what I judged to be a concussion. And when I got home a couple days later, I see uh, the Raw show and they have a, uh, not a super slow-mo, but a slow-mo, a Booker T's <laughs> super kick on me. At the moment I see it land, I was like, that's why I'm lightheaded. And so Booker T and I joked about it a little bit later, and he tried saying that I send the uh, forearms in a little hard in the corner. And then he kind of laughed. He goes, okay, man, I, I really did send that one in a little too hard. Not by design, but just sometimes those things happen. But I was relieved to see, okay, there's a reason for it. When I started running into trouble when I was in TNA, is I stopped seeing the reasons <laughs> behind the, the concussions. And that's when I should have just said I'm calling it a day because it no longer takes much to hurt me. Uh, at least I could justify continuing on uh, uh, because that was a <laughs> that made some serious impact. I know we have the footage somewhere, so hopefully you can find yeah, here it. Way to, okay, let's see it. Okay, here we go. Now watch, watch this kick. Boom! Watch my jaw. Bam! Yeah. Back and to the left. Back into the left. There we go. This is the key shot. The president going back and to his left. Back Boom. to the left. <laughs> back and to the left. I mean, that's, that's a pretty uh, legit yeah, kick there. Yeah, so that uh, had me dazed and confused. Great performer, great super kick. And that one just, uh, you know, just a little, um, you know, not intentional, but just uh, jolted the jaw a little bit. Let's uh, let's talk about the match here. It's uh, it is a main event. It's a big deal to be in the main event. Uh, the show does two hundred fifty five thousand buys on pay per view. It's the third highest of the year at this point, behind the Rumble Whoa. Mania. Really, uh, it beats SummerSlam, dude. Which I can't really. Believe. Whoa. Uh, and to your point. It's not a long match. And again, to remind everybody, it's John Cena, the WWE champion defending against Mick Foley, Randy Orton, King Booker, and Bobby Lashley. And it goes 10 minutes and seven seconds. And, uh, Meltzer would say real good match. Easily the best. Is Mrs. Foley's baby boy. Okay. Yeah. My, uh, <laughs> my, my beauty supply. I was looking for a bottle of water, but they're all empty. Uh, and then yeah, a couple bladder is working overtime today. You've chugged quite <laughs> a bit of water since you've been up. There. You got to stay hydrated when you're in another country. So, generally speaking, say when WWE ends its pay per view shows 20 minutes before the three hour mark, and in most cases, they're shorter than anyone else who does pay per view. The great champion from the past here was JBL, and the ring announcer, Justin Roberts, ran a hilarious acceptance speech. JBL got his radio show plugged. His Fox News channel appearances plugged, and they talk about how he grew up dirt poor, just like every son of a successful banker. And the match was all action. Now they tried to build a few spots for Cena Lashley, since at the time that's what they were building for for the next pay per view. But it wasn't one of those blood and guts crazy performances for Foley, since he was not the focal point. But he did right. fine. 
The big, yeah. ma- big spot of the match was Cena giving Lashley the FU through the ECW announcer's table. Booker gave Cena the axe kick, but Orton saved. Orton gave Cena the RKO, but Foley saved. And the place had a big baby face pop when Orton used the move on Cena. Foley hit the double arm DDT on Orton and pulled out Mr. Sacco. However, Booker super kicked Foley and the finish of the match saw Orton give Foley a field goal kick. And then Lashley speared Orton. Cena then pinned Foley after an FU three and a half stars. So, hey, man, uh, not a bad gig. If you can get it, you're going to get great money for three matches a year. And it's a 10 minute match. Hey, and I'm been, only in it for three of those minutes. So, uh, could have been worse. And I'm, and I'm resting, uh, intermittently. Yeah. Between those three minutes. I, yeah, like I said, I felt like it was good, but I, I you know, I, I, on paper, you're not giving your chance, self a chance to have that classic match just by the way it was, uh, booked. But when I brought it up to, uh, you know, two or three people who have been around, uh, more regularly than me said, Donald, oh, sounds good to me. And I went, Okay. Okay. And I was happy with it. Um, the day before, uh, this is interesting a little tidbit, uh, because the show was in Houston, I was in Mexico attending the grand opening of a uh, early education, uh, childhood at early education center, uh, that I had helped fund along with the Dalai Lama. Oh my God. Uh, so you talk about a tag team, brother. Uh, yeah. And the, the only thing I was hot about is they put his name first. And I know for a fact, Conrad, I donated more money than Dalai Lama did. So, uh, and who'd he ever beat? Yeah, really? No, yeah. Come on. Come on. And they actually misspelled my name too. But it was a really cool thing. I got to meet uh, one of the children that I sponsored. And it was a, a nice, uh, I was in a cool looking, like, white crisp linen jacket and I was about 300 even at the time which is where I looked okay you know I looked okay I looked like a large man uh, but you know like now I'm, I'm well over that uh so I have to slim down at some point get back into the good habits but it was a really fun day I was able to make it back to Houston that night uh had that good you know match I was happy with and at that point Unlike other times in my career where I didn't feel like I'd earned my money unless I was practically like crawling down the hallway, I was okay with putting it. I put it all out there in 2004 uh, at Backlash. I put it all out there against Edge uh, at Mania in 2006. Uh, we had the, uh, the uh, match with uh, me, Edge, and Lita against uh, Funk, Tommy, and Tommy's... Uh, Tommy Dreamer's wife. That was a wild and woolly affair. And then uh, Rick and I had a real wild and bloody confrontation in a SummerSlam. So I was okay, like, just being a role player in this one. Uh, Title match. I hadn't been in a title match in a long time that I could recall. And I knew it was good. I knew it wasn't classic, but it uh, it was a pretty good accounting of myself. And I said earlier, played to my strengths, avoided my weaknesses so that I wasn't like a glaring hole in that match. And I was uh, happy with it until the events of the next day. Uh, I mean, being, said, real good match, easily the best of the show. Uh, mm-hmm. But he thought maybe it was disappointing because it's yeah. the same as you. Yeah. But yeah. Still, three and a half stars, maybe with more time, would have been a bigger deal. But you had a lot of stars in there and, and some of these folks are still doing big things now. I mean, look at the run Bobby Lashley has been on mm-hmm. 
Oh, great. Years later, still at the top of his game. That dude is ageless, is he not? Yeah, I think he looks younger. Yeah. Yeah. He he's found uh, the fountain of youth. Ponce, he must know the Ponce de Leon, de Leon uh, descendants because he's found that fountain of youth. He's, he's taking- Benjamin Button wrestling. Really. <laughs> Getting younger. Uh, he's coming off the big wrestlemania appearance with donald trump uh you had the history with randy orton king booker is obviously uh, a a hall of famer and john cena man the franchise and just to be rubbing up against those guys and and being well received and hearing the crowd has to feel pretty good but in the back (laughs) of your mind there is this hey what's going on with chris thing well by now you know this episode is sponsored by blue chew let's talk about sex shall we remember the days when you're always ready to go Well, now you can increase your performance and get that extra confidence in bed. Listen up. It's bluechew.com. Bluechew is a unique online service that delivers the same active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis and Levitra, but in chewable tablets and at a fraction of the cost. Take these anytime, day or night, so you can plan ahead or be ready whenever an opportunity arises. And the process is simple, y'all. You just sign up at bluechew.com, consult with one of their licensed medical providers, and once you're approved, you'll receive your prescription within days. And here's the best part, man, it's all done online. That means no visits to the doctor's office, no awkward conversations, no waiting in line at the pharmacy. Bluetooth tablets are made in the USA, prepared and shipped directly to your door, all in a discreet package. Bluetooth wants to help you have better sex. So discover your options at bluechew.com. Chew it and do it. Dude love would be proud. Seriously, this is a home run. They're a day one sponsor for us here on the program. And you know why it really works. If you haven't tried it already, what are you waiting for? And how about this? we got a special deal for our listeners. Try blue chew free when you use our promo code Foley at checkout, just pay the $5 shipping. That's bluechew.com. The promo code is Foley to receive your first month free. Visit bluechew.com for more details and important safety information. And we thank blue chew for sponsoring the day's podcast. Um, there's nothing we can say that will, will make that better, but golly, what a senseless tragedy. But I do want to ask, and man, this is, this is awkward to bring up, but we didn't know what we know now back then about head trauma. And, you know, back in, back in my day, people used to sell the bell rung and, and that was it. And, and now we've learned and we've gotten better and I'm thankful for that. But when you're getting you know, to try to process all of this. And, and, and I think a lot of people, you know, don't want to hear that maybe CTE was a part of this and, and, and think that that's a cop out or an excuse. And I certainly understand it, but CTE did become a topic during this era. And Chris Benoit did become one of those examples. And with what we know about concussions, well, how you've had a bunch of those Yeah, start to get into your mind. Like, man, I don't know what happened with Chris, but if we kind of shared the same experience in the ring, that has to be a little scary, right, man? Uh, it is. Um, it is. And, you know, uh, we're talking about uh, doing this benefit for um, Steve Mongo McMichael. Yes, sir. Uh, in the beginning of September. And uh, you asked me, like, how quickly was I on that? Like, immediately. Affirmative. I'll, I'll be I'll be there. I, you know, I don't care if I have to spend next year in Chicago. I mean, I give it. I was a huge Bears fan uh, from the time uh, 1969. I had a Dick Buckus poster hanging over my bed, and he finally signed it like 20, 25 years later, which is a good story for another time. But I love the Bears. I remember when Deborah was my assistant, 
uh, I told her, I said, yeah, I was a big Bears fan. I said, I bet you I could still rattle off uh, 10 names from the 86 Super Bowl team. And she went, really? And I went, boom, 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 and had them all. And so here's Mongo, who was just this, not just larger than life and that he was a 275-pound monster of a man, but lived life with a real gleam in his eye. And he's, he looks like he's down below 100 pounds. It's, uh, it's heartbreaking. You can still see the light in his eye. Uh, and you can't prove that it was the concussions, but there's definitely a link between uh, football and pro wrestling and early onset uh, ALS. Uh, Conrad, I went as a guest to Chris Nowinski's to the uh, uh, gala for the Boston Center for Traumatic Encephalopathy. I think it's called Concussion Legacy Institute now, but I figure as long as I can continue to say Boston Institute for Traumatic Encephalopathy, I'll be okay. Yep. But there was a running back who was in a wheelchair with early onset ALS, and he said it's the same thing that you did. He said, back in my day, they said, ah, you got your bell wrong. Yeah. Uh, you, got a, you got a dinger. And he said, if instead of being told I had my bell rung or I got a dinger, if my coach had looked me in the eye and said, you have just suffered a traumatic brain injury, he said, I might not be in this chair. Wow. Uh, because we really downplayed yeah. head injuries. Uh, guys who did not wrestle with head injuries were looked down upon. Um you know, we had the benefit, like uh, when I had a concussion, I could say, hey, listen, man, don't hit me in the head today. Let's go after my knee. That's that's something we could do. But really what we should have been doing is taking 10 days off or eight days yeah. off. But you just did not do that at the time. We've we learned so much, right? Like uh, going, going back to the cell match, uh, I'll say during my shows, hey, hey, you know, we've learned a lot. <laughs> and if... The same situation presented itself in 2022. That match should be stopped. Yes. And I'd say, luckily for me, in a weird way, it wasn't. Because had that cell match been stopped, it would have trended. Now, let's just say this was a new match. It would have trended for two days and then been forgotten. Yeah. And instead, because of the actions of the survivors, meaning me and The Undertaker and Terry Funk as well, it was like a snowball going downhill, gathering momentum. But the line I use, and you've been at the show when I use this one, it's like, we didn't stop matches. We bought time. Yeah. And I'm proud of that, but it's also like living in the dark ages. You know, like, you know, we, we don't buy time these days. You know, we stop matches and we don't worry about the match that day. We worry about the next, you know, 30, 40 years of that participant's uh, life. So we have learned a lot. Uh, I know that uh, the CTE diagnosis has been really helpful to Chris's dad. Uh, I have to feel like something went wrong in there because he was such a humble, nice guy, very intense, very difficult on himself. But, uh, you know, I don't remember many people having a crossword with Chris. You know, he was very highly thought of. I, I could not call him a good friend. Because he was one of the guys that I went, hey, Chris, how you doing? Family good. And you think, you know, like <clears throat> you go through that same routine and you realize that other than the two times we traveled, like we never really had a big conversation. 
but it was always pleasant. And especially when uh, Nancy was there with his kid, uh, with his boy, Daniel, I'd gather around and spend a little extra time because Nancy and I, you know, had the, the friendship going back to 1990, 89, actually, when I joined WCW. Um, so I, I'm still skeptical as to whether anybody, no matter their brain condition, uh, would have it in them to pick up a gun and kill someone they love. Like, I don't know. That's a step beyond. I say it probably would not have happened had he not had the brain injuries, but I don't think you can blame it on the brain injuries alone. If that makes sense. I want to remind everybody this five ways between yourself, King Booker, John Cena, Bobby Lashley, and Randy Orton for the WWE title. I mean, pretty impressive that you haven't exactly been a regular performer. And now here you are in a main event for a title. Uh, It's, it's gotta be pretty cool to know that, Hey man, there's still a lot of faith and confidence in me. Yeah, it was, and it was a really, it was a fun concept for the idea because every one of the five participants was a former WWE champion. Uh, the one thing in the, in the course of the booking, the week before uh, I had this match, I had a match with Umaga where he basically squashed me. Yeah. And look, I'm not somebody who cares that much about wins and losses as long as they make sense. That one did not seem to make sense a week before the uh, the uh, the pay per view because I think if anything uh, the fans should have been given the idea that hey uh, this guy's been out of it he's a danger at any time he could win this thing I don't understand I mean I do understand building up Umaga and getting him a win uh, but I, I did not think that was the time to be doing it especially with a guy going into a pay per view main event the next week as you said it's the go home edition of monday night raw it's in uh richmond virginia i believe and it goes like two minutes and then six days later here you guys are at the pay-per-view in houston the uh, toyota center i I do want to ask you know because let's just call it like it is you were a quote-unquote part-time guy here yeah and now you're going to be coming in and taking one of those elusive main event spots (laughs) and there's been some guys who've had some rumblings over the years that they don't think yeah. that's fair that the rock comes back and he gets a WrestleMania main event or whatever. And you've always been the ultimate brother, uh, amongst <laughs> the boys. Chat me up. Did you feel any of that pushback or is it different? Because well, you're you. Well, I asked edge about that when we were working in uh, 2006 and he goes, Mick, he said, that doesn't apply to you. Yeah. He says what the guys have problems with is someone coming in for one or two weeks and capturing a spot. He goes, you come in for 10 or 12 weeks and you build programs that leave people better off than they were. And he goes, and ultimately you don't win these matches, you know, like (laughs) I always, I always try to leave people better off than they were. And I would never propose an angle um, that, that did not leave somebody better off. I guess the one where I went to Vince and, said I'd like to win the Royal Rumble, challenge both champions because I wasn't on a brand, uh, win a three-way dance and become a WWE uh, Undisputed Champion. Yeah, that was kind of all for me. <laughs> he shot that down in record time. He just said literally – he didn't even think about it, Conrad. He just said, I have no interest whatsoever in doing that. And I said, okay, I've got this idea for me and Randy Orton. And then that idea with Randy Orton went on to be the best thing. Uh, you know, I understand 
from the boys' perspective, because I, you know, still one of the boys. Um, you want spots on the card. Um, but when I come up, you know, when I do these things, meet and greets, I'm asked uh, large three, the three most common things I'm asked about are Hell in a Cell, by far and away Hell in a Cell, Rock and Sock Connection, and uh, the Rumble where I appeared as three different characters. Yep. So in that case, probably there were some people going, this guy's getting three spots, he's costing two people their spots, but guess what? Those two people would have been forgotten yes. uh, instantly. And instead, we WWE, who is in the business of creating memories, came up with something that uh, people talk about to this day that really made them happy. So, you, you know, you have to find a balance. I think uh, there are some pay-per-views that rely too heavily on part-timers who may not have the same interest of coming in and making the uh, world a slightly better place for mankind. Um, but but I do think there's a time and a place for uh, returning guys to come back. Uh, sometimes you need them at the top of the card. Um, that would speak more to WWE's inability to create stars, but I think they're getting better at that. Um, too much is not good. None at all is even worse. I'm curious after you've been out for a while, you're not a regular part of the crew. And I know that at times you described yourself as a bit of a loner, but you did have some pals that you would travel with from time to time. Who are you hanging with here in 07? Or do you feel like an outsider? Well, I mean, I was not an outsider when I would get into the dressing room, but because I'd be flying in uh, while the guys were already on the road, uh, any time after 2000, was beginning in 2000 when I was WW commissioner, I was joining the rest of the crew en route. And so I was able to rent my own cars. Uh, the company would take care of my hotels. This is where they wanted me to stay at the TV hotels. And I'm like, I just want to stay like, you know, three, I'm a three star man now, right? I'm no longer the one star man. I'm a three star man, but I don't like a big foyer. I don't want a bar. I just want a place where I can go in and check in and have a comfortable bed. And so I would ask them if I could get my own hotel and then submit the, uh, 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 the bills to the company. And I was always bad on that. I'm not a good dollar. I'm not a good organizational guy. And so I would usually end up handing them my receipts after about six months and there would be hundreds of them. Uh, but I was, I was used to traveling on my own. So I would see the guys and I really enjoy being around everybody when I got there, but I was on my own, you know, as far as hotels and cars went and I, and I liked it that way. It's a pretty short build we've got here. How you find out that they want you for this match. Like, it feels like I, I totally understand the idea of we're going to do three matches a year and, and we're kind of almost throw one away with Umar, but we're trying to make a guy. So, okay. But then this feels a little random when it's compared to what you did with flair or what you did with Orton or any of that stuff. Who pitches that idea to you? Is this something where, where Vince calls you and says, here's the big idea or what do you recall of that? This is probably a Brian Gewurz um, yeah. call. Brian would usually be the guy to call me. It just struck me as we're talking about this, that I was filming a pilot called wrestling my family. Um, 
2007 pilot uh, for A&E. And we really felt like it was going good. This is pre-Holy Foley. And um, and then the uh, it really felt like it was a good show. And the uh, showrunner, who was like the director, Marcus Fox, had been the showrunner for um, uh, Ozzy's show and Anna Cole's show, which were two of the biggest reality shows uh, on TV at that time. And he felt like he had a winner. And after the second day, he says, their only, their only concern is there's not enough conflict in the family. And I said, Marcus, I told them when they pitched this, I said, we're not like those families you yell at each other. And they said, no, no we're, we're looking for a new family. That's passe. But I think in uh, a lot of forms of entertainment, when push comes to shove, they want to rely on what has worked before. Yeah, and so when they came back for like the re uh, came back for additional shooting, we went from having nothing scripted, which doesn't mean there weren't produced elements, you know, like yeah, yeah, the Foley's are going on a cruise, you know, the the the, the older kids are going on a cruise. I've got to hold down the fort, the little cruise with the little kids. I know that's happening. I know we're going to a racetrack. Like we have to make fun stuff happen, but as far as the dialogue went. No one ever gave us any dialogue. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson here to tell you a little more about what adfreeshows.com is all about. Get early ad-free access to more than a dozen of your favorite wrestling podcasts every single week, starting at just nine bucks. That's less than 20 cents an episode each month. And yes, you can listen to them all directly through Apple podcasts or your regular podcast apps. How easy is that? Ad-Free Shows also has thousands of hours worth of bonus content and docu-series like Title Chase, Eric Fires Back, Conversations with Conrad, and The Insiders. Plus new series like The Book with David Crockett, Monday Mailbags with Mike Kyoto and Nick Patrick, and a whole lot more. And you want to talk about early, you can't get any earlier than listening to the shows live. You can be a part of the live studio audience as we record the podcast. Plus, ride shotgun alongside your favorite childhood heroes for live watch-alongs, Q&As, and other interactive experiences every single month. Come on now, see for yourself what thousands of other wrestling fans from around the world have discovered. That adfreeshows.com is the best value in wrestling. Check it out today, and hey, when you do, the first week is completely free. Adfreeshows.com. <laughs> 